This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. Some prison inmates use their time to get a GED, bulk up, or read. Others do magic. Nearly 20 years ago, professional magician Joshua Jay started receiving letters from prisoners asking for tips and tricks. A community of magician inmates has formed, and they teach each other magic through mail. Josh joins me on the line now. Thanks for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. How did you feel when you got the first letter from an inmate asking for advice? Yeah, you know, it, it's a f- weird story. So in prisons, there are certain sanctioned activities and sanctioned magazines, and one of them is Magic Magazine. So they feel it's a constructive thing people can do. You can do it by yourself. You can learn it um, in your bunk, and it uses things that are regular and found and allowed in prisons. So I wrote for Magic Magazine for many years, uh, for about 12 years. And during that time, I would get letters from prisoners and they would ask me to teach them tricks. So they would ask for clarifications on tricks or sometimes they would ask if they could share with me an original trick they came up with. And it's always a shock. But here's the cool thing about being a magician is you don't see age, you don't see race, you don't see even really any background information at all. The only thing that you really see is what the magic is. So I was able to communicate with these people and just talk to them from one magician to another. Why do you think inmates are attracted to magic? Hard to say. Um, I think I think that, that these people are looking for constructive ways to spend their time. And if it is all of these pen pals and Uh, incarcerated people have taught me anything. It's that they're just looking for a way not to be defined by the one bad thing that they did or something from their past that has defined them in the eyes of the law and with their families and their friends. And what's so cool about magic, and the article touched on this, but it didn't go into a lot of detail on it, um, is that magic, what's so great about magic is if you pour yourself into chess or bodybuilding or some of the other things that are very popular in prisons, you're helping yourself. You're filling your own time. But when you do magic, you're making the prison a better place for those around you. You're sharing something really interesting or funny or amazing with your fellow inmates, with the guards. And so in that sense, I think that it's a particularly special and constructive thing to do. Hmm. And I would imagine, too, it adds kind of like what you said, it just adds a little bit of novelty or wonder into the day of a that's probably pretty, you know, monotonous or the same every day for for a prison inmate. Oh, Oh, yeah. I mean, I help, you know, I I write to about five individuals right now. And the first thing that I always try to do is help them set goals. And most of the time, they're very limited. You know, most are in maximum security prisons. And so the goal that we usually set is that they're going to do a holiday show. Now think about this. At Christmas Eve or Thanksgiving Eve, these people are not only not with their families, but they don't get to celebrate in any way. There is no Christmas show. There is no entertainer coming in to give them something special. It's just another day. And it's particularly lonely for these guys. So for them to be able to put on a holiday show, yes, I'm helping this individual learn a routine and then take it a routine and add another one and a third one and get a closer and put it all together in a show. But what we're really doing is helping the whole prison system have a great day where guards can watch a magic show and the fellow inmates can watch it. And I, I, I see that as something really constructive. Have any of the inmates that have written to you told you that magic and, and learning how to become a magician has actually changed their life? I would say all of them. Um, it's particularly heartwarming. The two that, that made sort of the, the biggest appearance in the article. The New York Times article? New York Times. Is that what you're yeah. referring to? Yeah. Yeah, this New York Times article that came out last week. Two of those individuals that are quoted, 
those two guys are great success stories about how magic was the thing that turned their life around. Because think of the skills that it takes to be a magician. You have stick you have a tremendous amount of reading, you have daily practice, then you have to do public speaking. And these are all things that scare people typically. And they're great skills to have in the workplace. They're great skills for those of my correspondents who will eventually get out. One of them is already out in the real world again, and uh, one of them will never get out because of the, the sentence he's serving. How many letters have you received over the years? Um, hundreds. So I have a binder for each. I try and save them all just for sentimental reasons. And um, I have binders for each of the correspondents. Um, David is the, course, the first correspondent, and he and I have been writing for, I think, close to 15 years. And I have other people who sort of come and go and others who've uh, gotten out at one point and gone back in and a couple who will never get out. So, yeah, I, I save all the letters. It has sentimental value. In the article, they photographed me and did some videos of me performing magic with props that were gifted to me by my correspondents. And I treasure those things. You know, I mean, it's it sounds really cliche and corny to say, but I... I absolutely mean it, that I think I get as much or more out of this than my correspondents do. I mean, it's it's really gratifying to help people improve their skills, and I have such admiration. I mean, magic's a visual art form. It's hard enough to teach a magic trick to you if I was right in front of you. You know what I mean? If you had a deck of cards in your hand and I had one in my hand and we were learning together, it would be hard enough to get it right. To have to put it all in letters? Yeah, that would be really them, hard. It's really hard. It takes so much work from from the student's perspective on getting that right and just, you know, working at it and trying the amount of improvisation that they need and the gaps they have to fill in. Oh, I see what he's talking about. He means when the card is propelled in the air, it's going counterclockwise. So I have to catch it this way. It, it takes a lot of work, and they stick with it, and they do beautiful stuff. So are you having to draw out, like, little pictures of people and how you're supposed yeah. to hold your hands when you're holding the card and that kind of thing? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I have to make diagrams. I have to sort of describe things in any way that I can. I mean, one of the things about, you know, I was never a big one for prison advocacy before this, but, you know, prisoners are not allowed online. Um, but that's slowly changing. So a couple of my correspondents now use some very secure software, which is sort of a pay-to-play email system where you can pay to send emails inside, and it's monitored for safety, and I get that. But by depriving most um, incarcerated people from any access to the Internet, you're back to writing snail mail, which is something not many people do anymore. Joshua Jay is a professional magi- magician who's uh, writing prison inmates to help them out and teach them magic. Uh, Josh, isn't the first rule of magic, though, that a magician never shares his secrets? Yeah, it is. And um, there's there's something to that. However, I have always made the distinction uh, between exposure and teaching. So I've written some books that are available in all the the bookstores, and one's called Magic the Complete Course, and another one's The Amazing Book of Cards, and these teach magic tricks too. But the reason that magicians appreciate those books and not they don't condemn me is that to read these books, you have to make effort. You have to order them. You have to buy them in a store, and you have to practice. And so similarly, these inmates aren't just writing me saying, hey, I want to know how David Blaine did a trick on television. They're writing saying, look, I've been following along, I've learned some tricks, but I'm having trouble with the double lift. Can you help me? Mm. And that, to me, is an exposure. That's teaching somebody. Okay. But prison inmates don't have a lot of the things that we have. Like, they don't have a deck of cards. They don't have poker chips or, um, you know, ribbons, knives, coins, whatever else that you might use. So how are they able to do these tricks in prison? Yes, they definitely don't have knives. (laughs) Um, (laughs) For sure. um, yeah, uh, so that's really interesting. And if, you're, if your listeners can do one thing, I hope you will look up online. It's very easy to find a clip of me performing a trick, uh, original trick called Balance. And that answers that question in the form of a magic trick. You can just Google my name, Joshua J. Balance. And I created this trick 
as sort of um, a tribute to my correspondence. And it, it asked that very question. It asked this question, what does magic look like in prison? Because in many prisons, you're not allowed to have playing cards because uh, incarcerated persons will sometimes use those for gambling, and that can cause violence and a lot of problems. So they make their own playing cards. They have to use things that are allowed in their cells, like a toothbrush or a plastic bottle or crayons or cigarettes. And so I created a trick called Balance in which I balance all sorts of prison-sanctioned objects in impossible ways. And at the end of it, this whole sculpture is sort of balanced in a way that's completely impossible, and it becomes this almost like floating, enduring magic trick. And so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting, and it adds a whole other layer of ingenuity to what these guys do. They don't just learn great tricks. I don't just teach them things. They have to innovate. There's no such thing as sponge balls, the little red balls that magicians like to use. So they take sponges that they're given from the kitchen or the cafeteria and cut them out and make sponge balls. They make playing cards out of milk cartons. They make manipulation balls out of toilet paper and tide, uh, and dye. So there's all sorts of cool objects, and a lot of them are shown in this article that just came out. In the New York Times. Yeah. Can you give us an example of a trick that you've adapted for prisoner for prisoners? That's something that you would normally do, but that you've just helped, you know, tr- switch it a little bit so that they're able to do it with what they have. Yeah, sure. So um, a, a friend of mine, one of, the, one of my correspondents, asked how he could saw somebody in half. And obviously, you're not going to get him a saw, and you're not going to be able to build a box. So... I'm aware of this old method of quote-unquote sawing somebody in half in which you take rope and you wrap it around somebody's waist and you give two people on either side holding it and then you pull quickly and firmly and you are able to penetrate the rope right through a person, thus technically sawing them in half. And so I taught that trick and I guess it went down very well in a holiday show last year for one of my correspondents. Hmm. And you said earlier that you feel like they've they've um, influenced you more than maybe you've influenced them. How have they changed, you know, the way that you do magic or just your mindset? Yeah. And I, I mean, that's a great question that gets right down to the core of of what I hope people are taking away from this piece and, and from this initiative. And that is people are people. And it's just a constant reminder that you can't ever let somebody be defined by one moment or one bad decision or one aspect of their life. And I'm writing to people who some maintain there is innocence, some don't, but all of them have done seemingly very regrettable, terrible things. And yet they're writing to me trying to do something constructive with their life, trying to make their environment a better place. And these people deserve respect. And if there's one commonality between all of the letters and all of my correspondence, it's the recurring use of the word animal. And these people in this system feel like animals. They're constantly telling me they feel like animals. They're treated like animals. They're told not to look guards in the eyes. They're told not to look up. They're told to kneel down when something happens. I, One of my correspondents, there was an outbreak of COVID in his um, in his prison block. And so he has been for the last week and a half sleeping in the prison gymnasium. And he said it's overcrowded and that the food has been cut short and terrible things. And he just uses animal, animal, animal. And so when you write to an incarcerated person, when you help them, when you show them hope, the thing that they always say is, I feel like a human again. And that should give us all pause. Hmm. Joshua Jay is a professional magician, and he was recently named Magician of the Year by the Society of American Magicians Parent Assembly. Thank you so much for your time today. It was really great to talk to you. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm Ciara Hewlett. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. The conversations in today's episode come from the Top of Mind archive.
This is Top of Mind. Thank you for tuning in today. It's great to have you with us. I'm Julie Rose. The American chestnut used to be one of the most common trees in North America. Today, it's basically extinct because of a fungus. Biologist William Powell has created a genetically modified version of the American chestnut that can resist the deadly fungus. He's now in the process of trying to get approval from the U.S. government to release it into the wild. Powell is a professor of forest science at the State University of New York and co-director of the American Chestnut Chestnut Research and Restoration Project. Professor Powell, welcome. Thank you so much for taking time today. Well, thank you, Julie. If you would describe for us the heyday of the American chestnut in America, when was it? What was it like? Well, it was actually um, a long time ago, even before uh, the European settlers came. Uh, the Native Americans uh, used the American chestnut. It was one of the more common trees, as you mentioned, in the eastern forest, uh, running along the Appalachian Mountains from Georgia up to Maine. Mm. And it was also a keystone species uh, for the wildlife there. And What does keystone species mean? That means a lot of different uh, species of wildlife actually relied on the chestnut for their survival. Um, they uh, Things like bees uh, would come and use the pollen from the trees. Uh, deer, bear, squirrels would eat the nuts. Um, you know, so it was a, a species that when we actually lost it, um, a lot of populations decreased, and actually at least five species of insect went extinct. Oh. Is the American chestnut chestnut um, edible to humans as well? Uh, yes, and it's um, often confused with horse chestnuts, which are not edible. Mm. But um, these are edible chestnuts. Um, people used to uh, harvest them every fall. Um, some of the poor farmers in the Appalachians used to actually call chestnuts shoe money because they would go out, collect the chestnuts in the fall, bring it into stores and buy shoes um, for their children for school for the year. Um, so, yes, it was an edible nut, um, very important how else was it important to um, American culture once the you know once the <laughs> the people arrived the I right. mean the colonists arrived right so um, it had a couple of different things that was made it valuable one is the uh, nut crop or mass crop that it produced important both for wildlife and for humans uh, people used to collect the nuts and like I said would sell them uh, to local uh, stores which didn't transport them to places like uh, Boston New York and sell them on the streets You've heard of chestnut vendors around Christmas time. Those are the chestnuts that they would sell. Um, and actually, uh, one of our early deans, or one of our first deans of our college, wrote about a chestnut. And one of the things he said when he was writing about it is that in some districts of, of New York, uh, farmers realized more income from the chestnut trees than from any other farm product. And that's kind of unique because they didn't plant those trees. Those were just the trees that were naturally on their land. They were just harvesting and the nuts, and that was profitable. Nuts. It was just sort of like manna from heaven type thing. You know, yeah. you, just, you just go out into the woods, collect the nuts, and then you have a crop uh, every year that you can uh, sell. I presume that the chestnut was also really important to the indigenous communities as well. Absolutely. Um, for the same, same reason, um, they would collect the nuts and, and use it for different types of food. They'd actually use things like the leaves and the bark for uh, different types of medicines, too. Wow. So if I were to try to find an American chestnut somewhere on the East Coast today, um, how hard would it be? Uh, you still can find them, uh, but they are more difficult. So at one time, there was somewhere around 3 to 4 billion of those trees along the uh, eastern mountains of uh, the United States. And when, uh, well, I'll tell you about the blight in a minute, but when the blight went through, we lost all those. And now we basically have a few million stump sprouts left. So there's still a base of surviving trees. We call them functionally extinct because they're not doing the services, the ecological services they did in the past. But they're still there and still gives us an opportunity to restore them. Okay. Okay, and, and when did the blight, this, that's the fungus, right, that, that's, that killed the, kills the trees, when did it start to become a problem in, the United, in North America? Okay, that started a little over 100 years ago um, when people started importing uh, Asian species of chestnut. The American chestnut is called Castinia dentata. There's two Asian species, Castinia melissima and Castinia crenata. When they brought those over, and they were doing it for uh, purposes mainly for um, nut crops, uh, it was more of an orchard-type tree, where our American chestnuts were wild-type 
timber type trees. Hmm. And, okay, so uh, people, they, so you can eat the 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 nuts of the Asian chestnut as well, and they were being imported. Yes. People were going to farm them, basically. Yes, and people were going to plant them here and stuff. But mm-hmm. they didn't realize, though, at that time when they brought over these trees, they're not just bringing a tree over. They're bringing over all the microbes on those trees, yeah. all the things. And one of them was a fungus called Cryptonectera parasitica. That fungus on the Asian species just caused a little small damage, nothing serious. But when it came over here and jumped off onto the American chestnut trees, um, the, our trees were naive to the, that fungus, and therefore the fungus was able to form a serious cankering disease on the trees. How does it and kill the American chestnut tree? So what this fungus will do is it will enter a wound on the tree, so just a little scratch or anything that will allow it to penetrate the bark. It will colonize that wound for a while and live what's called like a saprophyte, where it just kind of lives off dead material. But then it goes to a change, and that change is when it starts forming mycelial fans, which are like mechanical wedges to help pry its way into the healthy tissue. And ahead of those fans is production of an acid called oxalic acid. Okay, And that will actually kill the tissues ahead of the growth of the fungus, and the fungus basically lives off the dead tissue as it kills it. Now, when it does that, it forms what's a structure called a canker, it's kind of a sunken, dead structure on the tree, and that eventually goes completely around the tree, girdling it, and cuts off the circulation up and down the trunk, and eventually kills the tree down to the ground. Wow. And about 100 years ago, this started to be noticed in American chestnuts. And then how long did it take for the chestnut to become functionally extinct? Well, it was uh, first described in 1904 at the Bronx Zoological Park, but they think it might have actually come 10 or 20 years before that. Um, but from that point on, it took only about 50 years to go through the whole chestnut range, killing you know, mm-hmm. way over 3 billion of, of the largest trees in the forest. And you've got to realize these were canopy trees, and they, they were big. And they were also prized for their wood because they had a very straight grain wood. It was very rot-resistant. People used to use it for all kinds of outdoor purposes like fences and shingles and, and building barns, as well as um, some indoor purposes. Uh, I have, my grandfather used to sell... Uh, antiques. And he said, when you look at the old antiques, you wouldn't see chestnut on the outside very often because it's not as hard as a cherry or a walnut. But where you'd find it is inside of where the drawers, because um, it was such easy, easily worked that people loved to use it for the interiors of the furniture. Now, during this 50-year period where people recognized that the chestnuts were dying, mm-hmm. um, w- w- why weren't they, weren't they, couldn't they have found some sort of fungicide to kill the fungus and save the chestnuts? Oh, they tried, they tried everything you can think of. Um, they had uh, big conferences in Pennsylvania to try to get all the scientists together uh, at that time to figure out ways to do it. They tried the fungicides that they had at the time that did not work. They actually tried to do what um, some people term as fire breaks, where they cut down all the chestnut trees ahead of the spread mm-hmm. of the chestnut, trying to keep it from going. That didn't work because they didn't realize at the time that the chestnut blight also survives on oak trees. And so even though if you remove the chestnut trees, it's still going to survive on the oak trees and go on through there, not killing the oaks, but just surviving on the bark oh, and then going to the other chestnut trees. Okay. So, so they tried that. They then start working on breeding programs where they would cross and make hybrids with the uh, Asian species of chestnut. Right, which, which, which is resistant to the fungus. Right, which is resistant. So that's one way to bring it in through that uh, hybridization between the two species, mm-hmm. and you get a hybrid. The problem is those hybrids are not suitable for our forests. They cannot compete out there. They, they just don't last. Um, they get outcompeted by the other trees. Um, so they, they tried to do it that way. They actually, in the uh, 1970s, tried uh, radiation breeding, where they would uh, expose the nuts to gamma radiation, hoping they'd get a lucky mutant that would be resistant to blight, and that didn't work. Um, Then in uh, 1983, the uh, American Chestnut Foundation started a program where they took the hybrids, which could be resistant but could not survive in the forest, and they started back-crossing them to American chestnuts, and the idea was to make them more American-like so they could survive in the forest, and, but at the same time try to bring over that blight resistance. And that was partially successful. Uh, the problem is they didn't know exactly how many genes. Originally they thought there was two, then they thought there was three, and now they think there's probably you know, over 10 genes involved in this. That, so, make, that make the Asian chestnut resistant to the fungus. That makes the Asian chestnut resistant. Yeah. So it makes it very difficult to do that type of breeding. So they've had some success, but only partially so far. 
And so that's where we came in. Right. Uh, you came in. Uh, and let me just remind people, I'm speaking with William Powell. He is a biologist at State University of New York, one of the leading um, scientists working on restoring the American chestnut through genetic engineering. So you have basically taken the approach of let's surgically <laughs> with a scalpel, effectively, a bacterial scalpel, edit yep. the DNA of the American chestnut to make it resistant to fungus. Um, yes. Okay. So where, wh- which, which gene are you working with or what, what are you trying, what have you inserted into the American chestnut to make it resistant to the fungus? So I just want to mention, though, that uh, we were actually approached by uh, the American Chestnut Foundation, the same ones that were doing the back crossbreeding, to try to do this genetic engineering. So they were the ones that kind of got us also started on this as okay. a parallel project. Um, so we looked at a lot of different genes. And so the one we actually came down to is the one that will actually disarm the fungus. Now, if you remember, I told you about the fungus attacking the tree. It makes this acid called oxalic acid. So it turns out that and that's a, what that's what sort of paves the way it kills the it paves the way for the fungus to kind of grow and then create the canker. Yes, absolutely. So okay. it kills the tissues. So that's the weapon of the fungus. So what we found is that there are enzymes out there, and particularly one that we use is called oxide oxidase, and there's a couple others. Um, but the one we use and it basically detoxifies that acid. It breaks it down. And hmm. by doing that, you're taking that weapon away from the fungus, and therefore it can no longer form the canker and therefore can no longer kill the tree. Wow. It can okay. still survive in the wound and grow a little bit, just like it does on the Asian species, but it's not going to kill the tree. But it's neutralized. Right. Okay. And, and that enzyme um, comes from what? That you're, that you're inserting into the DNA or inserting the capability to make that enzyme. Where is that coming from? Okay. So the one we chose, um, this, this enzyme actually is found in lots and lots of different plants. It's found in every type of grain plants uh, you can find, as well as a lot of, of the dicots, the broadleaf plants. Mm. Uh, so it's a very common defense mechanism in plants. So we chose the one that actually was from wheat. Uh, and the reason why we chose the one from wheat is mainly because it was just the most studied. And we, it's always good to use a, uh, a gene and an enzyme that's really highly studied because you don't have to rebuild the will every time. Okay. Um, so, and how did you get that wheat gene? Okay. To so actually, into a chestnut gene and allow it and have it thrive there. Okay. So we, we actually got the original gene from a colleague, uh, Randy Allen at Texas Tech. He sent it to us. And so we put it in one of our, what's called a, a vector. It's a way of transferring the DNA into the, um, the tree. And we use a natural genetic engineer called Agrobacterium tumefaciens. This is a bacteria that naturally puts genes into, into plants. And in fact, there's been some studies out there and said that maybe as much as 7% of all plants out there have been engineered by this particular bacteria at some point in time. Hmm. Um, so we use that engineer just like other people who do plant genetic engineering. And um, we put this gene into the uh, plant and then we, you know, did lots and lots of tests, uh, make sure it was uh, conferring the resistance we wanted as well as that it would not have any impact, no non-target impacts, for example, on, on uh, beneficial fungi like uh, mycorrhizae, and make sure that it's not doing anything to the leaves that fall down and, and animals that eat the leaves. Um, make sure it doesn't affect the growth. Make sure the nuts have the same nutritional quality. We've done all those kind of studies, which we have to do for the regulators, and, and that's where we are right now. I want to get to that, but just one quick um, question, though, on, on the actual technical process. Um, did you, you inserted the gene into a, like a nut, a chestnut nut, or into a well, sapling, or what is it that you... There, there's different ways you can do it. For chestnut, you actually have to use um, the chestnut embryos um, that you would get from the nuts. An embryo? And, Yes. So, you know, if you fertilize a nut, you can actually cut out the embryo from the nut. Um, sort of like, you know, if you ever open a peanut and you see that little piece in the peanut, that's the embryo, that little little uh, oh, funny thing in there. Kind of in the middle. Okay. Yeah. So you can take that out, and we can actually have that replicate. We have um, developed media um, that we can actually replicate it on that media. And then what we do is take the agrobacterium that has the gene we want to put in. It puts it into that tissue. And it does it one cell at a time. So what we have to do then is regenerate a whole plant from those cells that take up that that piece of DNA. Mm. And we do that uh, through a process called tissue culture. 
And then what we end up with is a clone. And that's important to know because our first trees that go out there are all clones of one another, but that's not what we're using for restoration. We don't want to put a clone out. So now we're actually involved in a breeding program where we're taking our trees and outcrossing to some of the surviving uh, American chestnut trees and therefore increasing the genetic diversity and local adaptation for a restoration program. And what percentage of the nuts of a genetically modified American chestnut will have the correct modification that will be resistant to fungus, right? Does every, all of its offspring have this resistance in it genetically? Yeah, right now um, it doesn't. It's in what's called a, a hemizygous state, meaning you know, the plant, just like humans, have two sets of chromosomes, one from your parent, each of your parents, the father and the mother. And um, so it's only coming from the father in this case. So that, what that means is that half the nuts will have the resistance gene. The other half will be wild type. Hmm. Okay? And that's kind of important because, you know, as we grow these trees up in the future, we can have a tree that we plant now, and 100 years from now, we can still get the wild type back out from it if we want to. Um, so that, that's good for conservation in case we do need to get that back. But we probably won't because this is a, a gene that's really going to probably do very well as far as uh, conferring resistance long term. So has, have you been able to prove that this American chestnut with the fungus, with the wheat gene that makes it resistant to the fungus, um, that, that it can thrive in the wild? So we, we, that's the next step. We have to actually get uh, permission from the federal regulators to actually start doing those kind of studies. Because it's genetically modified. Right, which is, is interesting because, you know, with geni- genetic modification, basically we have a 100% American chestnut tree. It has every single gene it started with, and we're just adding a gene to it. Um, unlike the hybrids, which aren't regulated, you're actually mixing genes from two different species, you're having chromosomal rearrangements, mutations happening, all kinds of stuff. And um, those kind of things, uh, you get much more uh, mixing of the genome than you would ever from, from genetic engineering. So genetic engineering is actually a way to maintain the integrity of the, uh, the chestnut genome and the chestnut tree. Right, but you have taken a gene from wheat and put yeah. it into a tree. Uh, so, I mean, isn't there some possibility that it will have unintended consequences? Um, probably not. Much less chance than, than the hybrid breeding or the mutational breeding. And also, you've got to realize this gene is in a lot of different plants already out in the wild. Okay? As I said, it's in, in all grains. It's in many uh, broadleaf plants. And also, there's actually genes in the chestnut tree itself that are at least 79% similar or identical to this gene. It just doesn't have the small changes that allow it to break down this acid. And the nuts that this genetically modified chestnut produces are safe to eat, both for animals and humans? Uh, Absolutely. Um, So we've actually done those tests. Uh, We've um, looked at the nutrition of the nuts. Uh, There's no no changes in the nutrition. Um, And this particular enzyme is just a protein. So it's just, you know, you would eat it just like any other protein. And in fact, you know, uh, oxalic acid is a toxin itself. So, you know, if there's any activity there, it would actually be breaking down a toxin. Mm. Okay. And you don't think it's going to kill any beneficial fungus or other bacteria that would be important to the chestnut? Uh, there's no reason to believe that, and we've actually tested that. Okay. Um, so we've, like, we've tested mycorrhizae, which are the beneficial fungi that attach themselves to the roots of the tree that help the tree grow. And there's actually no difference between the transgenic and the non-transgenic trees. Professor Powell, we've got 30 seconds left. What's, oh where God. do we stand in the process right now with approval from the government? So right now, the uh, USDA is the uh, people who are looking at our petition. Uh, it's about a 300-page uh, petition of all the data that we've collected on, on this. And what, right now, we're in an open comment period where the public can actually chime in and, and say what they think about these trees. Um, and I'd encourage anybody who wants to, to do that. You can go to our website to figure out how to do that. William Powell is a professor of forest science at the State University of New York. He is co-director of the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Program. Thank you for your time today. Fascinating work. Good luck. All right. Thank you. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening.
Thanks for tuning in to Top of Mind today. It's great to have you with us. I'm Julie Rose. As the world gets hotter, air conditioning is ever more in demand. But traditional AC requires a lot of electricity. And it's an important contributor to greenhouse gas emissions globally. So the world needs more efficient, less polluting ways to cool off. Let's hear about one solution put to the test in hot, humid Singapore. Eric Teitelbaum was on the design team at Princeton University that deployed this thing they call the Cold Tube Pavilion. Teitelbaum graduated with his Ph.D. in architecture and materials science from Princeton. And he's on the line. Mr. Teitelbaum, hello. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. The design you and your colleagues came up with is a kind of outdoor pavilion and it has walls that help people feel cool, but it's not sealed in. So wouldn't that just let all the cold air get out of all the openings? So that's an excellent question. Uh, the principle that this works on is actually called radiant cooling. And so it totally takes air out of the cooling equation. So you kind of reverse the sunlight paradigm and you are the sun, you're the hot body in the middle and your radiation hits the cold walls, and then the chilled water that we're circulating in those walls uh, warms up and carries your heat away that you're radiating. It's so sucking, it, it it's sucking, really it's literally, the, the pavilion is literally sucking heat out of my body and into itself. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Huh. Okay, uh, and so what, what is it that's in the walls that's, that's, that's doing that? The walls are cold, like cold to the touch. If I, if I were to lean up against it, it would feel chilly like a, I don't know, like the, like the wall of a refrigerator or something? So that's the trick. The cold part isn't actually in contact with the air at all, so you can't touch anything cold. There's basically a trash bag, a polyethylene membrane that separates this cold surface that we keep cold by circulating chilled water internally. But the trash bag essentially separates that cold surface from the air with an air gap. Um, and then, exactly, you, you can't touch anything cold, but your body radiates through that polyethylene bag. And then uh, your heat is removed by the circulated chilled water. Huh. It's, it's water that's chilled and it's going in. Um, like, is it just, is it like standing inside of an aquarium with water in the walls? Or, or like, how, where is the water inside the wall? Sure. So it's, um, think about, it's actually a four by eight panel, essentially. And embedded in that panel are these little tiny tubes that have water circulating in them. And we just have a pump, essentially, that pumps water through them. And you can connect as many as you want. And that water isn't actually in contact with, you know, like the outdoor air. Instead, it's enclosed. Mm. Uh, and the enclosure is this, this polyethylene sheet. Um, and it kind of makes this sealed bag almost around it. And it's through that that your radiation goes, but uh, it's not like actually putting you in contact with the air anymore. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah. It's, it's, so um, how, how cool it's does it feel? How, how, how much cooler does it feel if I step inside this? It's, it's strange to me that it would do anything, that it would make me feel cool at all if I touch the walls and they don't feel cold. <laughs> and if I'm not feeling any cold air blowing on me, it's, it, it's really kind of the opposite. It's so strange to think about that. How much cooler would I feel inside your pavilion? Well, yeah. So uh, it's definitely not intuitive because there's no other environment like this that you can really make a metaphor for. But if, if you know, it's, it was about 90 degrees Fahrenheit outside during our experiments but you walk in and it feels like it's about 75 degrees, even though the air oh. is still about 90 degrees. Okay. Wait, the air inside is, so, so a thermometer inside your cooling pavilion would show that it's 90 degrees, but I would feel it, like it was 75. Exactly, which brings up a really interesting question, right? Because you can't just install this system and have a normal thermostat control it. So it's really changing the comfort paradigm and lots of things would have to change before this is deployed at a commercial scale or, you know, even a large residential scale, mm. including the thermostat and how you go about thinking about cooling. Let's, it's, it's totally different. OK, let's put that to the side for a moment and come back to it because I'm still a little hung up on the technology here. You, there is some sort of a refrigeration that's happening, though, because the water has to be cooled. Right. There's absolutely refrigeration. Yes. Okay. So there's an engine or some sort of 
power source that and how is it cooling the water? Because the water warms up as it runs through the pavilion as long as I'm there giving it heat. Yeah, exactly. So in the experiment that we did, we did have a heat pump, which, you know, is a conventional technology. Your air conditioner is essentially a heat pump, except the goal is to make air cold. In this system, we were trying to make water cold. And uh, it's that chilled water that we're circulating. And the reason that's better, though, than air conditioning, Mm -hmm. even though we're using a heat pump, is just because you don't have to dehumidify. And so in very humid climates, about 60% of your energy budget for air conditioning is solely for dehumidifying air. Cooling air is easy. Dehumidifying air is very difficult. So that's why we're so interested in this kind of cooling technology that doesn't require any dehumidification. So just on that basis alone, it's much more efficient. Uses about half as much energy then. Exactly, yeah. And and why is it the traditional air conditioning where it heats air? Why does, I mean, sorry, cools air? Why does that also have to dehumidify? Air is kind of like a sponge, if you want to think about it that way. And the colder the air gets, the smaller the sponge is. So as you cool down the air, it holds less moisture. And so you can't cool it. It's called the dew point. You can't go... You can only go to the dew point before you have to start dehumidifying. And in human climates, your dew point is probably still higher than your thermostat set point. And so you still need to do a, a pretty substantial amount of dehumidification. Why would you? What would happen if you didn't dehumidify? Your, your room would just be super muggy and you start getting mold accumulating in places because you have lots of condensation internally. And oh. uh, yeah, so you need to dehumidify if you have air conditioning. With our technology, we're, we're putting forth this paradigm. It's uh, really air becomes more a ventilation, more a breathing thing, rather than being explicitly for comfort, which opens up lots of possibilities for, you know, bringing in fresh air, which is pretty exciting in, in today's coronavirus world. Right. Okay, so in Singapore, it's humid, right? Like really humid. So very when it's humid, hot, yeah. it also feels very muggy, the word you used. Um and it still feels muggy inside of your pavilion, your cooling pavilion, and it just doesn't bother me as much because I feel cooler? Exactly. So, yeah, it's um, it's still, you know, your air is 90 degrees and about 70% humid, uh, relative humidity. Uh, but because you're losing so much heat to radiation, uh, you still feel pretty comfortable, at least according huh. to all the participants that we surveyed for our thermal comfort survey. Now, you said, Eric Teitelbaum, that, that you've got the... Um, you've got the water running up and down in the tubes embedded in the walls, these four walls and a ceiling or three walls and a ceiling. And then you and then you say that it's all surrounded by this plastic material so that when I touch the wall, it doesn't feel cold. Why do you have it surrounded by cl- plastic? Wouldn't wouldn't it be even better if, if it actually also felt cold as I got near to it? So there's a really big benefit for not having the air kind of accidentally or you know like coincidentally cooled and that's because as again like i'm saying as you start to cool the air at a certain point you're going to almost accidentally dehumidify it oh water water droplets start like squeezing out of the air molecules exactly so that's actually the practical um, reason for having the membrane is that you have also avoid condensation which when you go to install this in a building you don't want water dripping on your head from the ceiling. Running down uh, the walls, would... right? Because if you didn't have that barrier, it would be, there would be what? So it's like um, when I put cold, a cold drink in a glass in, and it's warm inside my house, it'll eventually start to sweat and like drip water on my table. But you can get those like um, thermos type things with like a vacuum pack in between, you know, like vacuum wall in between where the drink is and where the outside is, and then it won't sweat. That is the perfect way to think about it. Yeah, except vacuums are really hard to create at large surface areas. So instead, we just have a large air gap. And that was sufficient to do exactly the same thing that you're describing. So how thick are the walls of this pavilion? The walls that we constructed were only eight inches thick. So, I mean, that's still pretty standard for a normal building. Okay. So not super thick, but yeah, it worked. And and it's basically a, a plastic sandwich with a gap of air. So it's plastic on either side of the wall air, an air gap, and then you've got your um, snaking tubes of cold water flowing in the very middle. Exactly. And uh, just one small difference. Uh-huh. Um, the one It wasn't double-sided. Uh, it was only kind of a single-side enclosure. The other side just had insulation because oh. uh, we didn't want cooling on both sides. We wanted to just direct it inside. Okay. 
Why? I guess it'd be uh, more just, efficient. It you want to focus pleasure. it, okay, on the inside. Yeah, exactly. And, you, you could do it exactly like you're describing. There's no reason why you couldn't if you wanted a wall down the middle of a room and have cooling on both sides. Mm-hmm. But we just wanted to have it only on the inside of our enclosure. And how close do I need to get to the wall when I walk into the enclosure? Do I feel cooler the closer I get to the wall? Yeah, so radiation and uh, radiative heat transfer, distance doesn't matter, right? We feel radiation all the way from the sun. Uh, what matters is the view factor. So the view factor is the amount of area surrounding you. So the larger the view factor, the more cooling essentially you feel. So if you don't want to put, you know, if you think about the sun, the sun is this really small but really hot body in the sky. Uh, So it has a small view factor, but it's like 5,000 degrees. So the cold tube, you can't go like to negative 5,000 degrees because that's below absolute zero. And, you know, you couldn't make a system like that. Mm. Um, So instead we have temperatures that are just below the air temperature for the most part, uh, but we have a large view factor surrounding you, so your body can still lose lots of heat to that large surface area around oh, you, Oh, okay. When you say view factor, you mean, like, what per, how, how much of my body has, like, a direct view to one of these cold walls? How many, exactly. you know, inches of my body? And if you, and so you have a roof, and, and I mean, this is kind of a, the pictures make it look a little bit like a, um, like maybe a bus stand that you you might see on the street somewhere, but you can kind of like walk inside of it. Um, and there's a roof too. So it's kind of shady in there. And all of the walls surrounding me have this water running through them, including the ceiling? Exactly. Okay. Yep, all of the walls in the ceiling. And it's funny you say that. The bus stop was kind of our design guidance uh, when we were coming up with what this pavilion was going to look like. Okay. Uh, it was kind of meant to mimic an outdoor bus stop where people actually use air conditioning in bus stops in Singapore. So we wanted to offer an alternative. Oh, wow. The air-conditioned bus stops in Singapore. Wow. That's, that's serious heat <laughs> to deal with. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I guess it makes sense. And um, so let's talk then, Eric Titlebaum, about deploying this indoors you've explained how it could work outdoors like at a bus stop but could this radiant cooling idea work in a home absolutely yeah there's no reason that it couldn't Um, i mean like i said there's kind of a learning curve here right you have to accept that thermal radiation is just as effective as air conditioning uh, for comfort and also you need to think about a little bit about how you control the system And so a couple of studies that we're coming out with next, they really speak to how, you know, kind of what the trade-offs are between installing this system versus a conventional system and how much energy you would expect to save, things like that. Right, but how would you even install it in an apartment, though? Let's say say it's just an apartment. Do you, you have to, like, put up new walls throughout the entire apartment and run water through every single wall? So, that, yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, initially, commercial spaces are going to be much easier to install the system in. It's definitely a retrofitable technology. And even for commercial buildings, radiant cooling does exist. That's not the new thing that we're coming up with, essentially. Um, so, you know, it is totally possible that you've been in a building that has radiant cooling already. Hmm. It's this membrane-assisted radiant cooling that's kind of a new concept. Where the dehumidification part doesn't have to happen because you've created the gap that allows for the condensation to not not happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, you know, again, you still need to think a little bit about the controls and what that looks like. But yeah. Right. But so in an apartment, like what would, how, it's not the kind of thing it sounds like where I could go buy a radiant cooling device and install it in my house, like put it in the window. This... Not yet, no. Okay. The, it's totally conceivable that you could. Um, one of our collaborators on the project, uh, Keith Bradford, he's got a startup company he's part of called Tro, and they make this really awesome window air conditioning unit. But it's certainly foreseeable in the future that you could use something like that um, to just connect a radiant cooling panel to instead of an air conditioner. But it doesn't blow cold air, so wouldn't it, it would have to make be a big, big area, some sort of bit like a big panel that would, you know, be viewable from every spot in the room in order for any radiation to come off of me and for me to feel cooler. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So, you know, we, we were talking about manufacturing something that's like a wall hanging that you plug into a heat pump because creating cooling, you know, it's, it's kind of, it doesn't really to the heat pump. It doesn't care where it's cooling goes. 
So it's kind of a different end use of the cooling that you're creating. Right. If you could color, if you make the plastic clear and color the water in the tubes and embed some LED lights, <laughs> you could make a really cool psychedelic wall mural <laughs> that you could install. I think that's a patentable idea right <laughs> there. Install <laughs> in an apartment in a main living area um, and you would feel cooler. But then people would have to get their head around the fact that, like, you could you could open all the windows because you don't have to worry about the letting the cold out because there is exactly. no cold to go out. Yeah, no, exactly. So, yeah, you're 100 percent up to speed now. And that's why we're so excited about this. There's no longer an energy penalty with this kind of technology for opening your windows, letting fresh air in and, you know, enjoying the outside, even though you're still inside. Okay, so Eric Teitelbaum, if this is not a new idea, if radiant cooling has been used before, why hasn't it been deployed more broadly than the condenser chilled air situation that we all use? So, you know, that's a question for an hour long interview, maybe. But, <laughs> all right, we got a couple um, more I mean, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, essentially, I, in my view, at least, I wrote my dissertation on a lot of this and uh air conditioning has become so conflated with cooling throughout its 100-year history that people don't necessarily think about thermal radiation as an independent variable for thermal comfort. People absolutely know that radiation is a really important metric for thermal comfort. However, historically, it's not something that you tune by itself for thermal comfort. And so, like I've said, this is really a different way of thinking about thermal comfort and, you know, air conditioning is really simple because, like I said, it both dehumidifies and cools the air. And historically, that's great. Uh, you know, you kill two birds with one stone. Uh, and there are lots of applications where you would still need dehumidification for it, where our technology you know, still wouldn't be applicable. But comfort, we argue, is not one of those. Hmm. Eric Teitelbaum is a graduate of the Ph.D. program in architecture and materials science at Princeton University. He's lead author on the Radiant Cooling Pavilion Project, which was recently published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I totally want to go. To, is it still up in Singapore? Could I go stand inside of it and see what this feels like for myself? Unfortunately, it's not, but we'll keep you posted about the next one. <laughs> all right. Any excuse to go to Singapore when this is all over pandemic wise. Thanks a lot for your time, Eric. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Ciara Hewlett, Cleon Wall, and Kyle Remond produced the show. Today's episode was curated from Top of Mind's vast archive of past conversations. I hope you enjoyed hearing some of our favorites. You can find more, lots more, from Top of Mind on the free BYU Radio app. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.